Good morning. I think uh, a word of encouragement to the band for such a great job today and the choir and Sean. Let them know how much you appreciate them. Oh, wow. Week after week, how blessed we are to be encouraged and led in musical praise and worship as we come into the preaching praise and worship. I want to encourage you to be a part of our congregation joining together and reading the Word of God together. This is the book that we're using. It's the Bible chronologically arranged by George Guthrie. There are several ways you can participate in this. One of those ways is simply downloading the electronic version and information on that. We've been giving it out to you week by week. It's available in the bulletin. And also, if you have any questions, you can call us. You can get it free on your iPhone or Android phone by downloading version and then downloading the reading plan, Reading God's Story. You can get a copy like this for $10. And also, if you just want to go just regular route with the Bible that you already have, we have reading plans already printed that are made available to you at a back table. If you'd like to order one of these Bibles, you can stop at that back table on your way out today. And if you ordered one and have been told it came in, those will be available today as well. In fact, this one belongs to Trent Guillory. Trent, are you back there? Here you go. So uh, yours is in. All right. Okay. Hebrews chapter 3. I need to tell you a little story as we start. Friday when I left the office, I was finished preparing for today, I thought. I, uh, I had PowerPoint done, I had the outline done, and uh, I just everything was finished. And my notes were ready, the outline was ready, and started kind of chewing on that Friday night and Saturday morning. And I realized I had done something that I, well, I frequently do to you and sometimes needs an apology. But when I start studying, it just becomes so rich and so fulfilling and filling that, that I, that I over-prepare. In fact, I realized that my four-point outline that I had prepared was four sermons, four whole sermons. So the next four weeks, I'm going to preach to you the four sermons that I prepared and finished over the last couple of weeks and printed in an outline and had to trash that outline and get rid of that PowerPoint and totally reproduce that last night and this morning. So here we go with the first of those four sermons, starting in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Now, a single thought starts in 3, 6 and ends in 4.16. And those single thoughts, there are four single parts to that single thought. There are four separate aspects of that thought that make up one thought. So I'm going to start today with the first part of that, and that is God spoke, the place He is taking us is 
his rest. If you'll remember, as we outlined the book of Hebrews and gave an overview with three statements, we started with the statement saying, Jesus is worthy of worship as the only Savior because of who he is. Then we said the second part is Jesus is worthy of being trusted in as the only salvation because of what he has done. And then we said Jesus is worthy to be enduringly hoped in for the ultimate or the best situation because of where he is taking us. So it's who he is, what he's done, and where he's taking us is an overview of the book of Hebrews. And today, we're going to talk about the place he is taking us and what the book of Hebrews calls it. The book of Hebrews calls that place his rest. And it starts in chapter 3, verse 6, with a thought that continues through all the way until chapter 4, the very last words. We won't cover all that today, but we want to kind of see what sews these parts together. So look in verse 6 of chapter 3 with me for just a moment. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if, if we hold fast our confidence, that is, that which we are trusting in, and the boast of our hope, who we are boasting in for our hope. So there's this idea of if we hold fast. So obviously there is this potential that some of the people who have identified themselves as followers of Christ as followers of God in Christ, or in the Old Testament story, followers of God in the hope of Christ, obviously some of those did not hold fast. Now let's go a step further. If you come into chapter 3 a little further, it says it again in verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance. So the evidence of us being in Christ, the evidence of partaking of Christ, is an enduring faith that goes through one's entire life. Not just a moment where a person gives a one-time expression of belief, but a lifelong experience of belief. So think with me how this thought goes together, this this whole long thought in Hebrews 3, 6 through 4, 16. How does it go? Well, we're Jesus' house if we hold fast the confidence and the boast of our hope, which is Jesus. We are partakers of Christ if we hold fast our assurance firm until the end. Now come to the last verse in today's reading, which is verse 11 of chapter 4. 
Let us therefore be diligent. Let us therefore be diligent. Let's go back. There's this idea that some who have identified with Christ won't go all the way to the end with Christ. There's this idea that some who have said they are assured of Him will not hold fast that assurance. So therefore, something all of us must have is a diligence about this thing called faith. So how does that work out? The story in Hebrews 3 and 4 has a backstory that I gave you a few weeks ago. It's really been over a month. So I'm going to go back to that backstory because of a line in Hebrews 4. Actually, it's two lines. Look in Hebrews 4.1. Excuse me, 4.2. For indeed, we've had good news preached to us just as they did. Well, who's they? It's those people that were laid low in the wilderness in the story of chapter 3 that Matt read just a few minutes ago that God was displeased with. Now, now, I hope that you're asking in your mind, when did they have the good news preached to them? That's a question that should come to our mind. We should go, wait a minute, when did they have the good news preached to them? Then he says it again in verse 6 of chapter 4. Look. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter. So here is some people, here are some people in the Old Testament who had the good news preached to them, but they failed to enter into the picture of God's rest because of a lack of faith demonstrated by disobedience. What is that story about? Well, I want to take you to Exodus 24. Let's go there for a moment. Exodus 24. When God was setting apart a people for Himself, calling them, starting with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, story of Joseph, Egypt, deliverance out of Egypt, the Exodus event, God hears the groans of His people, comes, brings them out of bondage. He preaches the good news to them in many ways, but primarily in Exodus 23 and 24. So if you'll put your finger on 23-20, we'll walk into 24. Listen to the good news preached to them. Verse 20 of Exodus 23. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Okay, this is called the rest. It's pictured in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua is pictured there, but it is not totally fulfilled there. We'll, We'll understand that in a moment. Verse 21. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice, and do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. 
But if you will truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars to pieces. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. And there shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets ahead of you, that they may drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the whole land. And I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea of the, to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. You shall not live in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is the good news. That God is going to do the work of salvation in bringing them to the land Himself. That He will do it by sending a messenger before them to accomplish what they cannot accomplish. It's a picture of Christ. It's an angel that goes before, a messenger that goes before to carry out the very things that they not only are unable to do, but that they fear. So after God preaches this message through Moses to them, this good news of deliverance from slavery through the wilderness to the promised land. This is all God's doing. If you'll notice, it says, I will do this. I will do this. My angel will do this. We will do this. All of the work of salvation, bringing them from where they are to where they're going, is done by God's power, by God's might. And so the people say, look in chapter 24. They all gather together. They hear this word. Verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord, all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken. What do they say? We'll do it. So they are making what we call a profession of faith. We'll do it. All right? We'll do it. So here is... A profession that they are going to believe and obey. Now something happens. Let's jump many pages to the book of Numbers. Because all of this comes together in the book of Numbers for the story that we're told in Hebrews 3 and 4. This is a people who have said, I identify with the people of God. I believe what he said is true. And all that he has said, from the commands to the promises, we will trust and obey. 
or there's no other way. So, in Numbers 13, something happens. The spies go to check out the land. Now remember, what is God going to do to bring them to this land? He's going to send His angel before them to accomplish all the work. All they have to do is obey the direction of God under the work of the angel, the messenger, God's appointed servant. That's what they have to do. So now they decide to measure and they send out 12 spies. You know the story, I hope. The 12 spies come back and they give a divided report, 10 to 2. It's a Baptist group and so the majority wins, which reminds you, the majority's not always right. But the majority wins and here the 10 spies say, look, it can't be done. What do they say? Verse 30, good report. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. What was Caleb doing? He was believing, even though he had seen the giants, the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, that were, that were so big that we looked like grasshoppers in their sight. Even though we've seen that, God has said something. He has preached a message of good news to us. That message of good news came in Exodus 24 when He said to us, I will be the deliverer. I will be the overcomer. I will be the one who conquers your enemies. I will do those things. You just obey me and do what I say. I will do the work. You simply engage in that. I will do miraculously what you cannot do. Caleb says, let's go. Listen to the others. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. And my brothers and sisters, this is... <laughs> when, when, when Sherry cooks at home, we, we have a Chinese student staying with us right now. He may be here with us today. His name is Sean. He's a delight and a good friend of our family. And so because he's from China, he's getting to try a lot of new dishes uh, as Sherry cooks different things and as we experiment just to let him taste different kinds of things that, that he would like to taste. And as Sherry cooks these really good meals that we're all accustomed to. He says something every time he sits down. It's really funny. He sits down. We're gathered around for dinner. We pray. And then he puts his fork or his spoon in the food and he says this. He says, the moment of truth. The moment of truth. And he takes and puts the food in his mouth and gives differing kinds of reviews because of his tastes being different, not being from South Louisiana. And so he says, this is the moment of truth. That's what's happening here. The question here is not works of whether or not Israel is strong enough. The question here is faith in the good news God preached to them. His good news was, I will send my angel before you. He will drive out the enemy. Because of him, the enemy will turn their backs. Because of him, 
they will be driven out and conquered. Joshua believed the good news and was willing to act upon it. But these people were not. They had the message preached to them, but they did not unite the message God will with the faith that says, I trust. And the result? Remember that Hebrews 4 is pointing back to this story. Hebrews 3 is pointing back to this moment where suddenly the people say no. And what do they want to do? Look in chapter 14. Here it goes. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would that we had died in this wilderness? And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. In other words, we don't need the promise of an angel who will do something we can't. We need the promise of what we can see personally. We'll do it ourselves. And they want to go back. The story of the wilderness wanderings of Israel from the beginning of the Exodus until the day Joshua finally delivers them is a story about whether or not God's place of rest is the most desirable thing to pursue. That's the story. Now, let's go back to Hebrews And look, bring our outline up, Peggy, if you would. Let's begin with a statement. Number one, one click. Our ultimate desire must be God's rest. Now what I want to do quickly is walk you through what George Guthrie in his commentary on the book of Hebrews said about this rest and give you something to kind of reflect on later. So let's walk through those real quick. First, he says this. It is a rest that the hearers should fear missing. It is a rest that the hearers should fear missing. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear. This means there ought to be a terror about not going to heaven. There ought to be a terror about not having God's presence. There ought to be a deep, abiding, serious fear in every human heart that the most desirable thing in the universe is this thing called God's rest, which is the place of His presence and the place of His power in the place of his observed glory this is what we see in the book of the revelation when everybody gathers around and they see the lamb as if slain and god reveals his glory and and angels are crying holy 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 this should be the highest desire 
of every one of our hearts. To be in the place called God's rest, which is the place of His presence, the place of ultimate praise, and the place of rest for our souls. Second, it is a rest that some in the community are in danger of rejecting because they have not combined faith with obedience to God's Word. That this is a danger place, having grown up in an evangelical church that preaches very clearly salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. We have the tendency to think that faith means a one-time expression of belief after which we are baptized. But the Scriptures teach us that it is an ongoing experience of trust that lasts a lifetime. That that is how faith and works come together. That genuine faith, God will drive out the enemy, means you have to enter the land under that promise and obey Him to enter when He says, how He says, where He says, so that you experience the glory of what He has promised because you have connected faith to that promise through obedience. So the writer to the Hebrews is talking about a rest that some of the people who are who've made a confession, a profession, like they did in Deuteronomy 24. All that the Lord has said is true. We'll do it. But when the moment of truth came, it was a moment of obedience that was rested on faith. Okay. Next, Guthrie says... It is a rest that consists of ceasing from one's own works. This is the stickiest part for us. It's going to take me a moment to explain. When Israel was called to enter the promised land, they were not going to enter by their own works. The angel was going to go before them and do the work. That did not mean that they had no works at all but that they rested from their own strength. They rested from their own power. They rested from their own flesh and trusted in the strength, the power, and the spirit of the living God. They ceased trusting in themselves, which is the thing that always causes fear. Please hear me. Every bit of fear that we experience as believers comes from our trust in our flesh. And their fear kept them from entering and demonstrated the absence of true saving faith. So, I want to take you to one verse in the book of Hebrews that's important. It's in chapter 9, verse 14, and it has to do with this faith works thing. When the word rest is used, and we're going to really go into this tonight in our Bible study, 
when the word rest is used, it's used of God's Sabbath rest on the seventh day when he rested from all his works. He had accomplished and he rested. We have to do the same thing. We have to cease from our labors and rest in what God has accomplished. It's what Hebrews 9 verse 14 is talking about how much more will the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works. What does the blood of Jesus do? It cleanses us from self-trust. It, it cleanses us from self-confidence of our own flesh. It washes us of the need to believe that I have to rely on myself for anything. In fact, Paul speaks deeply of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, Brethren, we do not want you to be unaware of the affliction that came to us in Asia, for we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of our lives. We have the sentence of death in ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Paul speaks of the kind of trust that the writer to the Hebrews is, is talking about. Now let me take you back to the book of Numbers so that we can close and understand how this works and faith relationship thing comes together. Back to Numbers chapter 14 and chapter 15, and then we close. See, aren't you glad this is not four sermons? This was point one. Okay, here we go. All right. Numbers, look at what happens. The Lord rebukes the people and says, here's the deal. You're not going up. And they go, tell us we're not going up. <laughs> You've got to be kidding. Tell us we're not going up. You can't tell us that. We'll show you that by our strength we can do this. We're not scaredy cats. Now listen, this is what I call the man up syndrome. My brothers and sisters, listen, there is a horrid kind of theology today that rests on people becoming courageous in their own strength. It is rooted in pride, it is rooted in falsehood, and it is rooted in the idea that somehow you can well up within you enough umption and gumption to get the work of God done through the power of your flesh. It is a lie. And it is no better illustrated than what God does next in Numbers chapter 14. Come with me. It says, verse 39, And when Moses spoke these words to the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord God has promised. But Moses then said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up, lest you be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. Listen, I want to tell you a story of a brother, a good friend of mine. It's a true story. He got saved. The Lord was working in his life. But he came from a pride and selfly confidence raising that was ingrained in his family. It was ingrained in his friends. It was ingrained in a theology that he had been exposed to. And so he had this strong time, this very strong time of feeling very, very sure of his salvation and his power and his strength. And so he's driving down the road, and here's what he said, and he recounted this story to me with tears. 
He said, I was driving down the road feeling so strong that I said to the devil, bring it on, bring it on. My brothers and sisters, within one month, he was in bed with a woman that was not his wife. I got to go into his house and listen to the sound of hangers being jerked off of the the rod with clothes on them so that the wife could move out. And there he was, having invited the devil in fleshly confidence to a battle. My brothers and sisters, please hear this. You will not If you want to take on the forces of evil and the gate of heaven by your own strength, you will be destroyed. There is only one way. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So let us close. Let's see what George Guthrie says and then give us three things we need to watch out for. Here we go. The rest may be entered now and will be consummated at the end of the age. I'm going to talk about that in depth tonight. But that means that the rest begins now by you relying on Jesus and his finished work. And you feel and you experience and you enjoy that rest. But it is not what it will be. It is not even a little glimmer of the glory of the moment when Paul was in prison. Think about this. Paul is in prison. The death sentence has been handed down. It's Philippians chapter 1. And he says to the congregation, I don't know how to pray. I, don't, I do not know how to pray because I've had a glimpse. I've had a glimpse of the glory. I've had a little insight of the glory. I've peeked over the rim of heaven and seen things of joy inexpressible. So I don't know how to pray. On one hand, I pray if I be released, I can continue to preach to you and write New Testament letters and minister to you. And I can do those things. And that would be very good. But if they kill me, that's better. better having the desire to depart and be with Christ. That's why our ultimate desire must be God's rest. God's rest is Christ. Now, as Savior and Redeemer and Friend and Comforter, but then beholding His Glory, joy inexpressible. So what could keep us from this? Peggy, help me. Click, click. All right. The first thing that could hinder you is the deceitfulness of sin. All along the path from the beginning of the Exodus story until the entry of the promised land and even thereafter, Satan came And said, there's something better than what God has promised you. It knows no bounds, my brothers and sisters. It comes in a zillion forms. But it is Satan walking up and sweetly enticing you into disobedience and faithlessness by saying there is something more desirable than Jesus. He is the supreme idolater. And our hearts are idol factories. And if we listen to Satan, our hearts will churn out idols faster than you can imagine. 
And so Satan will always say, there's something better for you than Jesus. There's something more satisfying for you than Jesus. There's something more fulfilling to you than Jesus. And so the deceitfulness of sin is found in Exodus, excuse me, in uh, the book of Hebrews. Let me read it to you. It says, Therefore, encourage one another as long as it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What did happen to these people in Israel? They started seeing and thinking that being back in Egypt was better than being in the promised land in the presence of God. And so they wanted to go back. Some of you have been tempted after your confession or profession of faith to go back, and you have. And it's possible you did it because you have no abiding faith. You actually may be lost, yet baptized, yet on the roll, but you may be lost. The next challenge for us, the enemy of entry, is the disobedience that reveals unbelief. There is that moment of truth where the promise of God is either sufficient or it is not. God only knows where that is. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks when we get to Hebrews chapter 6 and where that moment of truth has entered several individuals' lives in the book of Hebrews. And it's galvanizing. It's scary. And then finally, let us see, and we close with this, a lack of diligence that allows misunderstanding of the gospel. My brothers and sisters, many of us were cycled through easy believism in our church life or through an evangelist or revivalist who came in and was unclear about the fullness of the gospel message and how the gospel message is not just a momentary, warm, fuzzy, religious, passing feeling where we kind of get our ticket punched and get to heaven. But that real faith is a sometimes grueling, always abiding, always enduring belief that no matter what is happening currently, where God is taking me is so good, it is worth the endurance. Years ago, I was in Indonesia on a mission trip. And I got sick. I got the kind of sick that if I described it to you, you'd be sending me letters. Not a good kind of sick. I will suffice it to say that I was so sick that I was laying in the bathroom floor. And Indonesian bathroom floors are not kept like ours are kept. And I could barely get up and I went through about three days of it. I, I believe it was typhoid. I was so sick that I was just cross-eyed. I was wavering in my faith and wondering why God had brought me on my first mission trip to do this to me. I wanted to go home so bad. I wanted Sherry to take care of me. She's a great nurse. Give me a big smooch and welcome me home. I wanted that. I wanted to see my kids. I mean, I was so sick, I was thinking I might not ever see anyone. 
And I just felt worse and worse and worse. And despair kind of started setting in. And I just longed to be home. Started to get a little bit better, but not sufficiently to really feel good. I continued to be physically sick. The time drew nigh for my flight to come home. And I had to get up in the middle of the night, catch a train, catch a bus, taxi, get to the airport, very little sleep. It's going to make one jump to one country and then a 14-hour flight after that. I went to one of the doctors. I begged him. I said, give me something. I don't care what you give me. Shot, whatever it is. When I'm asking for shots, you need to call a doctor. Just, just help me. Listen carefully. I had a ticket home. Graciously, someone had paid that ticket for me. It was a completely free ride. But I had to get to the airport. And I had to endure going through the checkout going through customs, going through immigration, going through bag search, going through ticket check. I had to endure all of that. Then I had to endure sitting in a waiting room, feeling so ill that I could barely move, just making it because I had some medicine that was just taking the edge off. And I had to do all of that to do one thing so that I could meet that flight that would take me home. Everything paid, everything done, but the day, the moment of the flight departure, I had to have the trust to get to the airport, to get through all of the checks, to get to the waiting area, and to get on the plane. The plane was going to do all the work, and somebody had paid the cost, but I had to get there even though it felt terrible doing it. My brothers and sisters, heavenly journey is waiting. Flight departing. Christ paid. But if you don't make it to the airplane on time, you're not going. Do not toy with One of the recurring words in this passage is the word today. Moment of truth. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. It's possible that you're sitting here and today you hear His voice. And today He is called. And today He is inviting, and today He is wooing, and today you are boarding. Do not delay. Do not make excuse. It could be for you the last flight out. Pray with me.